You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Well, this morning we jump right into the fourth chapter of a series that we've been doing in the book of Ephesians, which for us comes at a really good time. The book of Ephesians is one of those letters that Paul wrote to a community just like us in Ephesus, modern day Western Turkey, about what it means to be the church. For us as a community, heading into the fall especially, when things kind of start ramping up again, it's such a helpful thing for us to just take a moment, wade real deeply into scripture and reflect on what it means to be the church. The church is such a beautiful and marvelous thing, isn't it? But at the same time, if I was to sit around, sit down with each one of you and ask you about your experience with the church, I'm sure a lot of what I would hear is like how you've been hurt by the church, how things haven't gone really well or your way in the church. We see both of these even in this letter. On one hand, Paul gives us this mind-stretching view of the beauty of the bride of Christ, the church, Christ's body on earth. And on the other hand, he realizes still that there's these concrete standards, these ways that the church ought to behave and conduct themselves in their life together. And that that isn't always easy. It's not always intuitive. It doesn't come naturally to us. But Paul gives us some of those expectations. He kind of calls out what is normal for people who belong to the church. How are we to live with one another? For instance, in verse one, he writes, I urge you, listen to this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a way that's like fitting of who you are. In some ways he's saying, be yourself, right? And that be yourself is talking about kind of even our behaviors, the way that we live, the way we deal with one another, there is actually a normal for the church in our dealings with one another. There is a a standard, there is an expectation as those who belong to Jesus that we get to abide by, cooperate with. And Paul is urging us, don't put off these standards, don't dismiss them, but cooperate with what God's doing in his church. Learn to be a member of the living body of Christ and live that way. This is some of what Paul is outlining for us in this fourth chapter in Ephesians. Another way to put this is, or in what he's going to get at in this next section, is that what's really normal for people in the church is to live by a standard of charity to one another, which, before we go any further, is not the status quo. We leave this room, and for how many hours are we formed and shaped by the habits that aren't charity? And then we're expected to come into the church and act like charity is just totally normal for us? It's not, it's so hard. And so unless we're intentional and unless we actually like come around, like join in table groups or participate with other Christians, unless we have this intentional community of disciplined charity with one another, it's not just actually gonna hit us one day. We're not gonna wake up and be like this really charitable person out of nowhere. We actually have to apply ourselves to this habit of charity. Paul describes what this looks like in verse two and three. To live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of 
peace. Can you imagine people describing the church with those words in public, out in the world? Oh, the church? You mean those really kind and gentle people? <laughs> like that's not our reputation, is it? And it ought to be because that's actually who we are. Some of us may, when we hear all this description that Paul's giving, we, you know, we're tempted to like roll our eyes. I read this and I think, wow, that's wonderful. But uh, part of me is saying, Paul, how naive. Oh, Paul, how naive. You don't know how the world works. Is this a normal expectation for living in the church? Yes, it totally is. Paul isn't naive, but he's actually calling us to this way of Jesus in which all the habits in our lives, all of our dealings with one another, all of our desires and motivations are in line with the person of Jesus. And that is the basis for how we function in the church in reference to Jesus. What a wonderful vision. Can you imagine being this kind of people who deal with one another with a genuine, not a put on, but a genuine humility? not assuming that you are better than the other, but that you have something to learn, something to receive, not positioning over and against each other for who's right or who's gonna win or who's more senior or who's in a position of power. Can you imagine being a very teachable people who have nothing to lose and all of the riches of Christ to gain who are so teachable? People who don't assume that they're probably right and the other person's probably wrong. A people, a community who deal with each other out of love, like a genuine love for one another. What a beautiful vision for the church. That's actually who you are, is what Paul's saying. This is normal. Kindness, that's normal in the church. We should be surprised when we don't see it in fact. Patience, totally normal. This is you, church. And I don't, put all this out there to say, okay, folks, I want you to really try to be this. That's not what Paul's saying either. We're not trying to make something that already isn't there, but merely cooperate with something that is already given to us in Jesus. We don't actually have to go and build the church this way. This is the church. This is what Christ has given to the church. We have to merely cooperate with it, be ourselves. The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It may not be apparent. And I know this like kind of runs contrary to so much of our experience sometimes of like living closely with other people in community, which is so rough. But the church is one. We, we say it every week. One holy Catholic and apostolic church is what we believe in. And this gift of unity this bond of peace isn't something that we have to build, but something that Jesus has already given us to start out with. Something we get to keep, something we get to maintain and protect. This, friends, is square one for the church. If you wanna know what it looks like to belong to a community like a church, it's to start from the unity that we have already won, that Jesus has already won for us in God. Unity. And this starting point, not some other starting point, but the starting point of unity, it actually frees us up. If that's the first step, it frees us up to live charitably toward one another because we're already one. We're already together. We already belong to one another. We already can trust and love and act charitably to one another. It's a game changer, this kind of unity. 
you should recognize this next section from our baptism liturgy. If you've ever been here with us for a baptism, uh, at the beginning of the service, instead of saying, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever, I stand up and say, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Did you know that it comes from Ephesians 4? One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, is what Paul writes to us. This is square one, church. There is one God, and there is one church. We are one. What I want you to do is look to the people next to you. Look at the people behind you. Look around. You can do this. Have you, have you seen everyone? Look at their faces. I see you all. I can see everybody. These are your people. These are your people. So when you think, who are my people? These are your people. And it may not seem apparent that these are your people because socially we organize ourselves in so many other ways. How countercultural it is that this group of diverse people can actually say, no, these are my people of all ages, of all colors, of all ethnicities, of all socioeconomic brackets. These are your people. We are one. Not because you're all into the same things, not because you're all part of the same political party, not because you're part of the same income bracket, not because of really any of those other identifying marks that the world has for us, but only because you belong to Jesus are you one. And therefore, these are your people. There is no other unity in the world that is as thick as this. This is it. We are one because of Christ. So we're one. But that doesn't mean that we're all the same. Doesn't mean that we're all like kind of a melting pot, right? Or just kind of washed of all of identities and gifts and background. No, we are one, but we're not all that talk the same or look the same or act the same. There is a unity that's given to us but it's served by the diversity that's also within the church, the diversity of the gifts even that God has given to us in Christ. Look at verse seven, it says this, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What is Christ's gift? And what are these gifts that are given to us according to the measure of that gift? What is that about? Well, Paul, in like typical Paul fashion, in eight through verses eight through 10, he elaborates on exactly that question. He kind of anticipates it in a kind of a complex, convol- I don't know, I hate, hesitate to say convoluted because I'm probably just not very smart but, and Paul's genius. Um, but in this complex way, he, he answers that question, what is the measure of Christ's gift? Basically in saying this, Christ is the one who has come down from heaven and descended to the lower parts of the earth. This strange little phrase that there's a lot of debate about. To such an extent has he from heaven descended to whatever place this is that there is no place, there's no experience, there's no reality beyond the reach of this one who has descended from heaven. It's all in his reach. It's all in his grasp. Not even death limits Jesus. By the way, this is partly where our our creed gets and he descended to the dead, partly. In his descent, even unto death, and his ascent, even in his resurrection, and even into the ascension, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, in all of this movement, 
Jesus has won for us what is rightly his. He's gone there, he's been there, he's done that. There's no depth of pain or darkness or separation from God at which Jesus has not even been further. He's done it all. And in doing all that, he's won for us all of the gifts of heaven and applied them to his church. If there's anyone, in other words, who can give gifts from heaven to the church, it is this one. And guess what? Jesus has given gifts to his church. And not like the way we tend to give gifts, conditionally. Well, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. God is not a Coke machine. We don't have to make some sort of exchange, but Jesus is actually freely and without being stingy or anything, giving us these gifts that we don't deserve. We hadn't done anything to earn, but freely have been given to us from heaven by Jesus because of the work that he has done. And these gifts, he's not just being nice, but there's actually a purpose to all these gifts that he's given to the church is to build up the church. Look at verse 11. And he gave, these are the gifts, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Wow, think about this. God has given everything that the church needs to us. Everything that we need to be the church, we have. We're not lacking. Everything. We have everything we need. Let that sink in for a second. We have everything we need to be Christ's bride, the body of Christ, the church, the city on a hill, the salt of the earth. We have everything we need. We don't need any more money. We don't need any more staff. I mean, I could use some staff. We don't need more power. We don't need to like weasel our way into certain rooms of authority and power. We have all the power we need. We don't need better stuff. We don't need more committees. We have already everything that we need to thrive and to flourish as the church. Man, this really speaks to me, especially as a person who's like moved to Austin years ago to, to start this church with not knowing anybody and somehow a church came about. And people ask me, how did you plant this church? I'm like, dude, I'm sorry, I have no idea. It's like the worst advice you can give to an up and coming church planner. Sean, have you done it? You've done it twice. Every time I'm like, ah, I don't know. Like the Lord does this. He births his church. And I'm not like really clever or like tricky or I don't know, smart in that way. No, God is freely given to his church what it needs to grow and to be planted and flourish. Guess what? When the church is planted and growing, it's just like doing its thing. That's what it's supposed to do. When the church isn't growing, when churches aren't being planted, when the saints aren't being equipped and growing in maturity, something's wrong. In its natural habitat, the church grows and flourishes and thrives. Why? Because it has everything it needs. Jesus has given it everything that it needs. So what gives? Why isn't the church thriving, blossoming, the city on a hill? Why doesn't the church have this reputation of like, oh, those are those people who deal with each other with gentleness and respect and humility, and oh, they're so teachable. Why aren't we that way? Well, I think if it's lacking anything, 
It's that we don't cooperate with these gifts. We don't cooperate with what God's doing in his church, what's already here. We kind of obstruct, don't we? We get in the way of that. What keeps us from cooperating? Why not? If we really have a vision of what the church is, and we want the Lord to just unleash that on our neighborhood and even in our own lives, why wouldn't we cooperate? Well, I was thinking about this on the plane ride home. I think there's two things. If I could just speak to Rez, Rez family, if you're here visiting, you can like peek in, but we're gonna have a family moment here for a second, okay? I think there's two things that keep us from cooperating with all of these gifts that God has given his church. One, I think is it's, I'd say, let's call it gift neglect. So many of these heavenly gifts, these like stronger and more powerful than nuclear material is sitting on the ground in this room, totally unused. And for a lot of reasons, you can think of the reasons why, you don't, well, I, you know, I'm busy or, um, or you just self-disqualify yourself. Like, well, I'm not really that good. And someone else is probably better than me at that. Or I don't have enough education or you name it. We come up with all of these excuses, these reasons. That's for ordained people. That's why we have a priest, right? He does all that stuff. No, that's, that's actually, that's not fair. It's not true. Right, right here in this room, we have all of these amazing gifts that are going unused. And I want to invite you this morning, if, if that strikes something in you, I've been there. Oh, man, I've been there. I, got, I can tell you all kinds of stories about the ways that I didn't want to use my gifts because I was, like, embarrassed or whatever. Can I just invite you to reconsider putting those gifts to use? Because our church actually needs them. If something's not quite full, if something's not quite, like, full strength here at Res. It's probably not because we don't have it. It's because we have it and we're not using it. And we really need you to join in, to put your gifts to use. You'd be surprised. Come talk to your table group leader. Talk to one of our team leaders. Come find me if this is you. And let's figure this out. We'll figure it out together, okay? Don't let your gifts be neglected. The second one I think is this, is a, a kind of a DIY discipleship culture. You know, DIY, do you guys know what that stands for? Do it yourself. So anytime something's broken in the house, Michelle's like, honey, do you know how to fix this? I'm like, give me two seconds. I go to YouTube. Yep, I know exactly how to fix this. And she thinks I'm amazing. She knows I'm looking at YouTube. But this, like this, I have everything I need to kind of fix things around the house. I'm not very good at it, but I try. And it's impressive to the kids most of the time. But this kind of do it yourself, I can fix everything culture which is so great in some ways, um, it doesn't actually work in Christian discipleship and in becoming a more mature Christian and growing in Jesus. You know, you can't be a Christian by yourself and you can't grow as a Christian by yourself. This is what I mean by DIY discipleship. It's so, so much easier, isn't it? To think, I'm just gonna work on me and I don't have to like, tell anybody about my problems or own up to my shortcomings. I can just like, I'll figure it out. And then when I'm ready, then I'll come into public in the church and then I can deal with other people and maybe I'll disciple other people, but I don't need someone to disciple me. That's ugly, isn't it? I mean, there's something quite wrong about that. You can't do it by yourself. In fact, can I give you some good news? You need the gifts of other people in this church to help you grow. You need the experience and the wisdom and, and the maturity of others to help you grow up. It doesn't just happen. 
You need others in this church to help you grow. Some hard, sometimes it's so hard to be corrected by other people. I think there's another reason why we'd rather do it ourselves. Trust me, I get what it's like to be corrected. I get corrected all the time. This is like, it's not easy. I get it. Um, and in fact, any ordained person who is trying to offer you some correction or some, some discipleship or inviting you into maturity, just remember that they have been themselves through a very much more grueling process of inspection and discipleship and correction. Like they, they're held accountable in ways that are, a lot of us don't see. I am, certainly. I have bishops and mentors. I got all kinds of people who tell me things that I don't want to hear. And it's good for me. And I know it's good for me. But it's so hard and I get it. The gifts in the church, though, have called some to be shepherds, like myself. Some to be apostles, like your bishop. Some to be teachers. We have deacons. I mean, we have people in the process of becoming deacons. And myself, we teach. And these gifts aren't merely self-identified. They're not like, I'm going to be a shepherd and a teacher. Everyone follow me. No, it's actually the church's job to discern and identify and raise up and mature these people who are to be shepherds and teachers. It's a really great thing that we don't have this self-selection process. In fact, we have discernment committees going on right now when someone has this inkling like, man, I think I might be called. That's not good enough. You actually have to sit in a room with people week after week after week who read your biography and inspect every part of your life and discern with you, is this person truly called? That's a gift to the church. We need others to grow and to discern our call. That self-discipleship, or really, can we just call it pride? Pride that keeps us from being taught by others. It's harmful to us. It cheats us. It steals you from your best learning moments to grow up. When it's tough or when it's hard to swallow, that is, friends, listen, when it's tough, when someone who is your shepherd calls you on something and it's tough and it should be called out in love and gentleness and respect, when it's called out though and it's hard, it's so easy and so tempting to come up with a reason to not listen to them or to just leave find another church where someone will tell you what you want to hear or to just totally ignore it. But if you want to grow up in Jesus, you actually have to deal with that. You got to reckon with it. And it's not there to hurt you, but it's there to actually grow you up and mature you. Maturing doesn't happen without moments of correction. And instead of accommodating your immaturity, I want to invite you to lean into these invitations of growth and maturity, these ways that are pulling you out of your comfort zone and inviting you to grow up. When we dismiss people, the shepherds of God places in our life, when we leave and go find a church that's like easier for us or whatever we do to kind of work around actually having to grow up and grow deeper in Christ, you know what it does? It actually does harm to you and it does harm to the body. It splits up the body. It doesn't, like Paul's saying, build up the body. It actually chops it up and kind of splits it out. That's not why the gifts are given to you. The gifts are given to you and to us to draw us into unity, to build us up. So all of this, the good news is, friends, can you imagine being a church who has all of this growing up to do without any way of growing up? That's not us. The good news is the church has everything it needs. It has all the gifts that it needs to grow up. And I know that um, I also hear some of you thinking, okay, I read these gifts, but those are for clergy. That's not the case. 
Yes, certainly clergy have been called to do those things, but you also have a part to play in that. You have a part to play in shepherding people and in teaching others. You have a part to play in that. And at their best, when we all use these gifts for the building up of the church, something amazing happens. Listen to what Paul writes. These gifts are given to us to build up the church so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in our deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Friends, if we're going to be built up as the body of Christ, if we're going to be, be who we are as the church, there comes a point for each one of us personally where we actually have to decide to cooperate with the gifts that God's given the church. To grow up, to be formed by those gifts, and even to realize that you too possess these gifts that need to be put to use in the church. So to summarize, we have this starting place of charity that's totally normal. This is the way we operate that provides for us and has given to us by God a, an extreme and thick unity in the church. We are one together. And even in that oneness, there is a diversity of gifts. There's a diversity of people and experiences. All of this to build up and mature the church, to grow you up, to make you into what you already are as Christ's body on earth. And even beyond just for your own sake, our neighborhood so desperately needs a Jesus people. Our world so desperately needs the church to be itself. Apart from the church, I don't know of another hope for the world to see Jesus, to see the way he acts, to see the way he talks, to see the way he deals with people, to see the glory of God shining on the earth. The church has to be itself. And the good news is we have everything we need to do that, friends, this morning. So as we come to the altar this morning, I invite you, let's live a life, like Paul says, that is worthy of the calling that's been bestowed upon us as we grow into Christ-likeness, putting our gifts to use in the service of the church and for one another. That the world would actually see just how beautiful Jesus is, just how beautiful his church is. And that we, filled with the Spirit and shaped into the glory of our Heavenly Father, may be a blessing to each other and to the rest of the world. Amen? Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.